not fall. And as a result of reading these verses in Psalm 46, he wrote this classic work, The City of God, where he divided all of creation into two cities. The city of man, which was the earth, all the earth, and the city of God, which was the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, I think his theology really was wrong, but he got this idea that there's something, uh, God's kingdom, that will be stable. And so he writes this classic uh, book. Martin Luther, as a result of reading Psalm 46, wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And at Dallas Theological Seminary, they call that the Christian uh, National Anthem. At every major event at Dallas Theological Seminary, they all sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And let me just show you how he came up with the words of a mighty fortress is our God. In verse 1, for example, he has God is our refuge and our strength. Uh, and that's where he got the concept of fortress. A refuge is a fort. So he starts off, a mighty fortress is our God. And then in verse, into verse 1, you see the words, the midst, uh, in the... Uh, in verse 2, rather, you see this uh, midst of the sea, in the midst of the sea. It talks about how the mountains are carried into the sea and how the seas roar. And uh, he writes, A helper amid the flood. Now, I know that was really off, dude. But <laughs> and, and then verse 6, he has the nations raged, the kingdoms were moved, but he writes, His kingdom shall be forever. And then, yes, thank you very much. <laughs> and then, this shows you, I'm not a proud person. I'm willing to make a fool of myself. <laughs> Look at verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. In the Hebrew, that's Sabaoth. The Lord Sabaoth is He. From ages to age, ages to ages, to ages the same. And so from that psalm, He writes a mighty fortress as our God. Now, the thing that interests me, though, is that this is also known as William Shakespeare's Psalm 46. Because when the translators of the King James Bible, which was produced in 1611, were ready to put it on the market, uh, they first solicited a group of proofreaders to read over the Psalm, to make sure everything was right. And so they asked William Shakespeare to read Psalm 46, proofread it. They said, we're going to give you 46 because you're 46 years old. And so he reads it, and as he's reading down through it, we don't know whether this is coincidence or providence or manipulation. When he comes to the 46th word of the Hebrew, which is found in verse 3, at the end of verse 3 it says, Though the mountains shake, with swelling. Yours might say tremble or something like that, but the Hebrew word means shake. It means shake. And then when he read another 46 words down, he came to verse 9. And it says at the end of verse, in the middle of verse 9, he breaks the bow and he cuts the spear. Shake, spear. <laughs> 46 Psalms, 46 years old. 46 words, shake, go down another 46 words, spear, and it's become known as the 
Shakespeare's psalm, and it's a true story. Uh, those two Hebrew words could have been translated differently, but in the, New, in the King James Bible, 1611, they were translated Shakespeare. So that's, that's a true story. So it's very interesting. Um, now, if we're going to understand this psalm, we need to understand the context, okay? the historical context. And many uh, commentators believe that this psalm was written uh, when Assyria invaded Jerusalem. Now, uh, Assyria was a very evil empire. Uh, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. When Assyria came in and invaded the country and conquered the troops, they would take the men of that conquered city and they would fillet them. They would strip them of the skin. They'd fillet them like you do a fish. Hang them up for everybody to see. It drove the fear of Assyria into people. So many commentators believe that Psalm 46 was written in the midst of this invasion of Jerusalem by the mighty empire of Assyria. Now there's a reason that they put this psalm in that historical context. And here's the reason. Verses 1, 4, and 10 of Psalm 46 are also found in chapters 25 and 33 of Isaiah. Let me say that again. Verses 1, 4, and 10 in Psalm 46 is also found, paraphrased, in Isaiah 25 and Isaiah 33. And that's important because Isaiah at that time was a prophet and wrote during the reign of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, the king of the south, the king of Jerusalem, when Assyria invaded that city. So that's where most commentators place this song. Now, I want to show you the historical background. Okay? Here's the situation. I need you to turn over to 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings 17. Show you the layout. What's happening when this song is written or what happened that resulted in the writing of this psalm. When you get to 2 Kings 17, and you go down to verse 5, 2 Kings 17 and verse 5, your Bible may have a title. Mine does. It says, Israel carried captive to Assyria. Verse 5 reads, Now the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and sieged it for three years. Now at this time in history, Palestine is divided into two sections. There's been a civil war, in a sense. And there's a northern kingdom, the northern part of Palestine consisting of ten tribes which takes the name Israel and then you have the southern kingdom which takes the name Judah made up of two tribes the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin so you have a northern kingdom Israel and a southern kingdom Judah the capital city of the northern kingdom is Samaria the capital city of the southern kingdom is Jerusalem. 
2 Kings 17.5 talks about Assyria attacking the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. and literally decimates it and scatters the people. Now when you look at chapter 18, 2 Kings 18, still with me? We're now going to move down to the southern kingdom. And Hezekiah is the king. And you'll see that in 2 Kings 18.1. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began his reign. Now, Assyria attacks the northern kingdom, but the southern kingdom under Hezekiah escapes. It's not until 21 years later, 701 B.C., that Assyria comes down and attacks the southern kingdom under the reign of Hezekiah. Are you still with me? You have to understand this in order to understand the sum. On to the scene steps the prophet Isaiah. And he gives a word of encouragement. He basically says that Assyria, under the king uh, Sennacherib, will be defeated. You don't have to worry about anything. God's on your side. Assyria will be defeated. Okay. So when you look at 2 Kings 18.17, you see the king of Assyria went to the Tartan, sent the Tartan, Rabseris, and Rabshekah from Lachish with a great army against Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. So here you see there's the invasion of the southern kingdom. Now look at chapter 19. And so it was, when Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, went to the house of the Lord, that's the temple, then he sent Elakim, who was over the household of Shebna, to the scribe and the elders of the priest, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. Verse 6. And Isaiah said to them, Thus say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you heard, which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed Surely I will send the Spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. He'll retreat. And I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So Isaiah says, you don't have anything to worry about. You're going to see this guy run like a scared puppy. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. Now you're in chapter 19. Look at verse 35. Verse 35. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose in the morning, there were corpses all dead. Now remember the phrase, they arose in the morning, okay? They get up in the morning, and guess what they see out there? 185,000 corpses. So, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away 
returned home and remained in Nineveh, just like the prophet Isaiah said. Josephus, the Jewish, Jewish historian who writes in the late first century, describes this event as a plague that entered the Assyrian camp and wiped out 185,000 soldiers. And when the king, Sennacherib, came and saw what happened, he said, we can't win this battle, let's just go home. And he withdrew his troops. So, that's the context of Psalm 46. Now, let's go to 46 again. Back to Psalm 46. You still with me? Okay. Now let's look at the theme of Psalm 46. Verse 1. God is our refuge. God is our refuge. Look at verse 7. The end of verse 7. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Look at the end of verse 11. The God of Jacob is our refuge. What would you think the theme is? God is our refuge. <laughs> A mighty fortress is our God. Okay, That's the theme. What's the basis on God being our refuge? Look at the end of verse 1. A very present help in trouble. Look at the beginning of verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. Look at verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. So, he's our refuge. You don't have to worry. He's with you. And if God's with you, we can be against you. Okay? Now, look at the superscription over the psalm. The superscription. To the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. We know who those guys were. A song of Alamoth. Now, a song of Alamoth. What in the world does that mean? And some translations actually, some of your Bibles just have the Hebrew word there. Uh, it comes from the same Greek word that we get our word Alma, which is virgin. And what some commentators think is that this was to be a song that was sung during worship by a choir of single women. The single women sang this song. Just like in church, you know, we have a quartet, women get up and sing a song occasionally or something like that. Well, that's what this, that's who was the singer. So this was a song that was the instructions of the chief musician written by the sons of Korah to be sung by a choir of young women. Okay? Now let's look at the outline of this song. Okay? This psalm is divided, which is basically a song, which is to be sung, divided into two stanzas. Okay? Stanza number one, verses one through seven. We're going to call this the God of War. The God of War. Okay? And then stanza number 2, verses 8 through 11, the God of Worship. God of Worship. Now, this is really important. With such a thorough background, all we have to do now is read the psalm and we understand it. This is why... Historical context is everything. Remember this. When this psalm was sung in the temple and the Jews came together to worship it, they just heard it sung. It wasn't explained. No one exegeted each verse, did they? They have to do that? 
No, they knew exactly what it was talking about. You know why? Because they lived right when these things were happening. They knew the historical context. If I say four score and seven years ago, guess what? You know what it means. You don't have to say, I wonder what that means. Oh, four score, and they, it's 87 years ago. Okay, well, what, what's that referring to? Well, we know what it refers to because Lincoln was referring to something, and we know the history. Or I have a dream. Well, what does that mean? You had a dream last night? Oh, no, we know what that means because we know the historical context. It doesn't have to be explained. The entire Bible was read out loud or sung out loud. And no one had to explain it to anybody. <laughs> Because they understood it. They were living during the times. But we're living 2,000 years later. There's a gap of 2,000 years, and that's why we have to bridge the gap. We have to explain the history. That's why I believe the historical context of a book is more important even than the language. You know, that's, it's hard to understand, but if you're there, you know what it means. So with this background, all we need to do basically is read it. So let's read this psalm. Let's read it. Stanza number one, the God of war. God is our refuge and our strength. Well, in the middle of that, you know what it means, don't you? Do I have to go and explain it? Look, God is our defense. He's our refuge. We get behind the wall and get behind the fort. He's our strength. He's our offense. You see that? He's our defense. He's our offense. Boy. If I were a football player and I had a great defensive line and I had a great offensive line and I were the quarterback, what would I have to do? Would I have any problems? Would I worry about winning the game? No, not if I had an all-star offensive line, a defensive line. God is our defense. God is our offense. A very... And by the way, notice the verb there, which is italics, but it emphasizes that he is this. He was, it's not that he was or he will be. He is. Right now, God is, right? A very present help in time of trouble. He's always ready to assist. You never have to worry about anything if God is on your side. Now look at the result. Therefore, we will not fear. Even though the earth be removed and the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its water, waters roar, and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Now, verses 2 and 3 could be talking about natural disasters, such as earthquakes and floods. And, and John Wesley actually preached on this passage in, on March 8, 1750, when a great earthquake hit London. He took this passage because it talked about mountains going into the sea and quaking. But you know the context. Is it about natural disasters? What's the context? War. Everything shakes when there's war. My house shook last night a little bit. It's from firecrackers. Somebody was out back throwing out firecrackers. And our windows shook just a little bit. This is talking about the shaking of war. Uh, so when you see that, he's talking about hyperbole. Mountains carried into the midst of the sea at the end of verse 2 and so forth. Just a way of saying, hey, the whole world seems to be falling apart. So, what does he say? When this happens, when should we fear? What does it say there? 
When should we fear when all these things are happening? Verse 2. Never fear. <laughs> what are you afraid of? Don't be afraid of anything. We have nothing to fear. And then he has see law there. Do you see that in the end of verse 3? That's a musical notation to the choir master. He's probably saying, you know, have some sort of pause here in the music. Let people think about what's just been said. Let's have some sort of musical interlude. Let these words sink in to the people. If I'm for them, who can be against them? And then he goes to contrast. Look in verse 4. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. Now in the air, he's talking about a river. In verse 2, he's talking about a sea. He's talking about waters that roar in verse 3. But notice this context. In the city of God, what is there? There's a stream. A nice flowing stream in the city of God. Raging waters in verse 3, which would sort of tend people to be fearful. And in verse 4, calm stream, look at this, that makes glad, makes glad the city of God. See, there's fear and there's gladness, there's roaring and there is a calm stream. Notice the locale is the city of God. That is Jerusalem. Earthly Jerusalem. He's saying, don't worry. In earthly Jerusalem, you are, you are okay. This city's not going to be penetrated. Just be relaxed. God's taking care of you. Into verse 4, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. Uh, that's where God is. If God is in the city, you don't have to worry about anything. And then he says in verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. That's the guarantee. That's the guarantee. She shall not be moved. He shall help her just at the break of the dawn. What did I tell you to remember when you were looking back at uh, 2 Kings 19? What happened at the break of dawn? What happened in the morning? They woke up and in the morning, what did they see? 185,000 soldiers of the enemy slain, dead. And the king of Assyria woke up in the morning and there were his troops and guess what? He said, let's go home. We can't win this battle. They have something that we don't know about. And that something was God. That same phraseology, the breaking of dawn or the break of day or early in the morning, is also used back in Exodus 14, 27, where it says that in the morning, God, Moses stood up and in the morning, the uh, Egyptian soldiers were running through the Red Sea after them. And God just closed the waters right over the Egyptian soldiers and they all died with an act of God in the morning. In the morning. You can put your head on the pillow at night. And while you're doing that, God's working for you. He'll slay 185,000. He can slay a whole army. You have absolutely nothing to worry about. You should sleep and be glad that God's on your side. And that's what he's saying here to this nation. Don't have to worry about anything. 
Look at verse 6. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, and the earth melted. Now notice that. God speaks, and the nations are moved. Did you see that? But look in verse 5. Look at Jerusalem. God is in the midst of her, and she shall what? Not be moved. Do you see that? You just stay right where you are. Just plant your feet. God's taking care of you. If you're his people, you will not be moved. The enemy is the one who is being moved. And then he says, verse 7, The Lord of hosts, Sabaoth, the Lord of angelic armies, is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Think on it. Let's have a lot of musical interlude. Let's uh, have the crowd uh, meditate on the lyrics of this song. So that stands at number one. All makes sense in the historical context. Now imagine you reading that and you didn't know the historical context. You can make anything out of it that you would want. It'd be a nice little devotional ditty, <laughs> you know. But here's what it means. Now look at stanza number two, verse eight. Come, this is an invitation. Behold the works of the Lord. He has made desolations in the earth. And so guess what? You wake up in the morning and take a look. What do you see around you? I see all the enemies. They've fallen. He's inviting them to take a look. What are the Jews doing at this point? They're looking. They're spectators. <laughs> They're spectators. Who's done all the work? God's done all the work. All there to do is look. See? He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and he cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Notice that God does it all. He, he, he. See, he does it all. Notice the extent of the victory. I mean, he, the victory is total. I mean, they don't even have any weapons left. Uh, and what's the result? There's peace. But peace only comes after the judgment upon the nation. Now you can see how the early church took that psalm and applied it to the second coming of Christ. When Christ comes, all the enemies will be destroyed and there will be peace on earth. You can see how that has a, an end time application and the early church applied that text in that way. But historical... Historically, this is how what the text means. Look at verse 10. Now God speaks. First time God speaks in the psalm. He says, be still. And know that I am God. Just shut up. Sit down. Take a look around. What do you see? Cease your self-effort. Cease thinking you have to uh, win the war yourself. Cease your self-help mentality. Just be still. Here's what I want you to do. This is, a, this is our duty. This is an order. This is a command. This is an imperative. Here's what I want you to do. Don't you wish Christians would do this? Stop what you're doing. Stop all your busyness. Stop fretting. How am I going to do this? What's going to happen? No, what happened? Oh, no. 
still. Know that I'm the Lord. Just take a look. What are you worrying about? What are you saying? In the middle of verse 10, I will be exalted among the nations. I'll be lifted up. They will see what I have done. As well as you. I will be exalted in the earth. They will recognize that I'm the one who produced the victory. That I am the exalted one. I am the one who is worthy of adoration, praise, and worship. On what basis? On the basis of what he has done. And then verse 11, we have that repeat of that refrain. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And then again, some sort of maybe music that allows you to think about what has been said in the song. So, Dallas Theological Seminary calls this the National Anthem of Christians. Uh, I don't know if it's that, but it certainly could be called the National Anthem of Israel. <laughs> you know, I was thinking that this is considered Fourth of July weekend. I don't know how the calendar works anymore. I remember when you celebrated July 4th, aren't you? Now we have, uh, uh, my calendar at home has a red one and a red four on it. So it said, on my calendar says there are two celebrations of the 4th of July. One is this weekend and one is on the 4th. I do not understand that. But anyway, uh, as I was thinking through this, I thought of our own national anthem. Because I'm from Baltimore, Maryland, where the Star Spangled Banner was written. And it was written in 1814 when the British fleet attacked the port of Baltimore, attacked the city of Baltimore, at Fort McHenry, which stands right at the uh, edge of the harbor. So if you're going to come into the harbor and attack Baltimore, you have to pass Fort McHenry. And so as the British fleet came to attack the city of Baltimore, there was a response at the fort with the cannon shot. And, uh, Francis Scott Key had ferried out the day before to one of the British ships to negotiate the release of a medical doctor who had been captured two days earlier in the Battle of Washington, D.C. The British just decimated Washington, D.C. They captured this medical doctor. They are holding him prisoner. Francis Scott Key ferries out to the ship to negotiate the man's release. And when he gets there, the British officers say, you're going to have to stay on board because we're ready to launch an attack on the city of Baltimore. So Francis Scott Key stays on board, and the battle lasts 25 hours. And it dawns early light in the morning. As the smoke clears and the sun comes up, the flag is still standing over Fort McHenry. And he takes an old envelope and he starts writing down the words of the Star Spangled Banner. It was a very emotional moment for him. Over a hundred years passed. It's 1917. World War I's raging. At the opening game of the World Series between the New York Giants and the Chicago White Sox, they asked the entire audience to stand up and sing the Star Spangled Banner to honor our troops who were overseas fighting in World War I. That was the beginning 
of singing of the Star Spangled Banner at baseball games. I've always wondered how that happened. What in the world did we sing? Why would we sing a Star Spangled Banner at a baseball game? It didn't make sense, did it? Well, it was because a war was going on, and this was uh, produced pride and emotion in the nation, and that became the custom. And why now are we singing God Bless America during the seventh inning stretch? When did that happen? 9-11. See, there's always historical context of why we do things. So then, in 1931, I believe it was, Congress passed a bill declaring the Star-Spangled Banner to be our national anthem. And it's in that same vein that you need to think of that psalm. This Psalm 46, you might say, is the national anthem of the nation of Israel. Because they were in the midst of an attack by the worst kind of enemy that you can imagine. And God stepped in. And they all retreated. And the southern kingdom of Judah survived. Next week, we'll look at Psalm 47. Lord, we thank you for your word. Help us to uh, take these words to heart. Help us to be a quiet people. Help us to be a reflective people. Help us to realize that you are Lord Sabaoth. You are the Lord of heavenly armies. What human army can stand in your way? What enemy can come against us if we pledged our allegiance to you? Lord, help us to take these words to heart and apply it to our own lives and families. For Christ's name we pray. Amen.